Now I have your number. Thanks. Hey, I'm Robbie Kramer. You're listening to the Leverage Podcast, where we discuss using your social skills to hack dating, travel, finding your dream job, and becoming a complete man. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we've got a show about a problem that really plagues both men and women, and that's dealing with a partner with the insecure attachment style or being insecurely attached yourself. And uh, before I really understood what attachment theory was, I always just assumed I was healthy, of course, or what they call having a secure attachment style, but I didn't know about that at the time. Uh, But eventually I would run away from just about every relationship that lasted longer than a few months. And I just thought that I was forever plagued with, uh, you know, being perpetually bored. And I just needed to find a partner who would keep me interested. But then I experienced the other side of things when I dated a woman who was always kind of bored of me. And when I did more research and, and just the, these feelings of anxiety and insecurity, neediness, like caused me to really look at what's going on here. And that's when I kind of learned about attachment styles and avoidant personalities. And it was the first time I was ever really anxiously attached. So it took, you know, it took obviously me experiencing the problem on the other side to start studying it. But then studying it really transformed my dating experience. It allowed me to spot red flags and avoid insecurely attached people. And it really gave me the awareness to work on my own attachment style. So this is a subject I've been fascinated with for a long time. And I'm thrilled to have a very cool guest who's an expert on this subject. That's Tracy Crossley. And she's a behavioral relationship expert, author, and a podcast host who specializes in treating individuals with unhealthy life and relationship patterns. She helps her clients transform imposter syndrome, insecure attachment, negative belief systems, breaking the cycle of narcissistic damage, destructive self-talk, and more. And her background's in psychology. And due to her innate emotional intuition, Tracy has helped thousands of people overcome insecure attachment style through her work. So welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So why don't you give us a little background on how you got into this field of work and (laughs) what what (laughs) led you down this path? (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. So first of all, um, yeah, my background was nothing to do with insecure attachments. Nothing, nothing to do with this, except that I always had dysfunctional relationships. You know, I was married when I was younger, got divorced, always thought it was other people, clueless. And then a couple things happened. One, about four, I guess it was about 14 years ago, um, I read a book and I'm one of those people, if I read a book, I take notes that they mention other books in it. Well, I read this book. It was called The Wishing Year. It was a great book. If you guys are ever looking for like the power of saying yes to everything and what happens in your life. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so this person mentioned this book. And I looked it up and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to read this book. Uh, And then what ended up happening was I met the authors of the book and they're like, oh, you know, you do marketing on the site. And at the time I was unemployed. And so I'm like, yeah. And they were here. I'm in LA. They were in LA. And so I ended up working with them. They're like, oh, we want to train you as a coach. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. No. How am I going to make money? I don't want to be a coach, you know? Um, And it just basically ended up that I got to be a coach because they talked me into it. And at the time I'm like, oh my God. And I was stuck in the middle of a dysfunctional relationship where I, because I'm an anxious avoidance. So just like you, Robbie, 
It was, I was one or I was the other. And at that point I was like anxiously attached. Um, and I just remember like sitting through training and all I could do was think about, oh my God, am I going to hear from him? Oh my God. He wanted me to go to breakfast or something during it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm stuck here. I can't go. You know, and I'm having like all this, I know I was like anxiety, you know, crazy. And, um, so long story short, ended up being a coach. I didn't know anything about insecure attachment. Um, at one point the guy, this guy who I had an on and off relationship with for like six years, he basically said, you know, I think you're a love addict. I know I'm a love addict. So I get this love addict book and I'm going, oh my God, I do a lot of this manipulative crap in here. Holy crap. You know? So then it led to attachment styles. And then I went, oh my God, I read the book attached and I totally got irritated with it because it didn't really say a lot of good things for people that were anxious avoidant. It's like, if you're anxious, here's your answer. If you're avoidant, here's your answer. If you're both, you're screwed. So, you know, I thought, well, that can't be the case. And basically that was sort of like my launching pad into really becoming very clear on my own stuff. And I brought it into what I did and it worked with other people. You know, it was working with me and it was working with other people. And it was really about removing all of the stories in my head and really getting into feeling my feelings. Because if you can't feel what's going on inside of you, you really don't know what's going on inside of you. So anyways, that's the long and short of it. But that's how I I basically incorporated it into what I do. Okay, got it. So it was a similar sort of experience, Um, you know. I think most people kind of stumble into it when they realize like what's going on with my relationship. This doesn't seem right for some reason or someone recommends it, I guess. But I had the same experience that you did after reading attached where I was like, this doesn't really seem to fix my problem. Cause sometimes I'm avoidant. Sometimes I'm anxious and what do I do? <laughs> so, right. um, you know, something that, uh, you know, I, I always felt like that partner, that first made me aware of being like insecurely attached felt like she felt like a drug to me. Um, and it was the first person that felt like, Oh my God, she's my soulmate. But then it brought up all this like totally needy stuff. Um, and like, what, what is, what is going on with that? Like what's, what's with that drug feeling that soulmate feeling is, uh, what are your thoughts? Oh gosh. You know, it's so funny. I did a podcast on this a while ago and it was, you know, like how the sex is so addictive. And what's really funny, just, I know this isn't what you asked, but I'm just going to add this in, which is really funny. It's like when you're in that attached state, like that sex is so amazing. And when you're not in that attached state and you have sex with that person, you're like, holy crap, this, this this isn't any good. (laughs) It was the drug. Right. You know? It was, but um, it's that extreme chemistry. And what it is, is that if you notice, you were saying you get bored in relationships, most of us that are avoid more avoidant, because we are more avoidant, what happens is you're living your life, you have everything under control, and your emotions are under control. And you notice you don't really have a lot of highs and lows when you're in that place, you're sort of numb. And so this person comes along and imagine you're like the again, this isn't peace, but let's just say peaceful waters. And they're like the rock thrown into it. Right. And all of a sudden you're all over the place. And that intensity is a feeling and you're not really feeling feelings until that happens. And then all of a sudden it's like, everything has been woke up, but it's all in fantasy. It's all in this imagined what this person is going to mean to me, who they really are, because you don't even have to really know them. It's like the first date you could be like, oh my God, I mean, I want to, you know, jump their bones, but I also want to, 
you know, swallow them up. I want to marry them. I, you know, you're already gone. Right. Yeah. It's like you're immediately, you know, they say love at first sight or lust at first sight, but it's, it's kind of more than that. It's like high at first sight or whatever, first conversation. And you just totally get taken over by these people. And I found in some more of my research after dating a lot of these people and hanging out and kind of like the party scene, um, you know, going to places like Burning Man or, you know, Mykonos, uh, spending time like fashion weeks, like you meet a lot of very narcissistic people, but I found that the more beautiful led to likely more narcissistic, which also led to a better chance of me, you know, getting addicted to someone like a drug and then having this wildly unhealthy, crazy relationship. So I went, I basically did that like four or five, like relationships in a row. And it was really, it was definitely like toxic on many levels, as they say, but it was, it was very difficult for me to kind of like get out of it or see what I was doing because prior to that, it was always me being bored and me being anxious and then, or me being avoidant. And then it flipped the other way. And I had all these relationships in a row where I was like the anxious one. Um, so I was, you know, trying to, <laughs> I was trying to like deal with that while still partying and drinking and, and hanging out with this crowd. So would you say, and have you seen in your experience that there's links between all of this stuff? Oh yeah. I would say that. And also, of course we can go back to childhood, right? Where our attachment styles are defined. And a lot of times, you know, there was an exercise that I had people do at one point, which was to, when they would fantasize about the person that they were attached to, to basically put their father right in that place or their mother, depending on which one they had the more avoidant relationship with. And what's interesting is that you really find that the pining away or that feeling of, of being attached was really the parent and mm -hmm. you could feel it. And you realize that the relationship you're having is more symbolic of what is missing. It's like, you're still trying to number one, go to towards something that's familiar because it feels familiar. And that's why a lot of times, right. When you meet these women, you probably sent some kind of familiarity like, Oh, I've been here before, or I feel like I know this person. That was one thing that kind of threw me for a loop because when it came to the relationship with my mom, she was always like, you know, the stereotypical, like smothering Jewish mom who loves you to death and is just like totally like all over me all the time. Like I couldn't, I couldn't have gotten more love. I was like, leave me alone. Like <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So I guess that kind of played into my avoidant sort of behavior. Um, but then when it flipped and I became anxiously attached, I was like, what's going on here? So I had a little bit of trouble, but then I, also I looked at the relationship with my dad, where I was maybe more like anxiously attached when they're insecure. So yeah, it definitely plays in with the parents. I would say so. And the other thing is because I actually, one of my clients had, and he worked with me for a few years, um, you know, his parents were very similar. His parents actually didn't want him to ever have disappointment as a kid. And so he basically the overprotection, the over, you know, everything, except it wasn't really, I would say physically affectionate, but it was more about his parents were always saving him. And so as an adult, he had a hard time making decisions, even though he was extremely successful. He really, when it came to the personal relationships, like he was attached, couldn't get out of the, you know, the sex, like, <clears throat> excuse me, the drug, you know, for sex, like that whole feeling of, oh my God, I must be on something. He couldn't yeah. get out of that for years. 
And so it was really hard. I think when you have either extreme as a parent, you know, and that creates that imbalance because there's not a balance there. Right. And it seems like, I mean, there's got to be other factors as well, I would guess too. Um, Cause it seems, it seems to me like no matter how good of a parent are, you're, you're you know, your, your kid's still going to be like, you know, fucked up in a few different ways, right? Like mm-hmm. life happens or, you know, yeah. relationships happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and my parents were amazing parents. Like I have absolutely zero criticism or anything bad to say, but like, I can still be like, you know, you guys gave me this attachment style, right? You can, you can point the finger, obviously, <laughs> but I feel like that, you know, takes you down a, a, just a role of being a victim and blaming and that sort of thing. But if, so for someone you, you work more, so what would you say the percentage of people coming to you with a certain attachment style is, do you see more sort of, um, insecure or anxiously attached people versus avoidant? You know what? Um, How I I think I attract people. Some people will come and say, oh, I'm so anxious. But then the more digging I do, I find that they're avoidant too. I find that most people are, but there's more of a balance, right? Like I remember I had this woman come, she was in her early thirties and she's like, I want to get married, but I can't seem to last past the first date because I find all sorts of things wrong with a guy. And so, you know, she was more avoidant, but she had a lot of anxiety and she had had a relationship with someone in another country. And so when this guy would come visit, it would give her all of this anxiety. Like she was just completely filled with anxiety. She would feel attached and, but then her avoidance, would kick in and she'd want to get away from him. So again, I get more of the people that are vacillating between the two, depending on the relationship they're in, or if they're single and they've been single a long time, you know, I get, I get the hard cases a lot of times. Yeah. I'd say the majority of the guys I work with that seem to be struggling, they're, they're typically um, anxiously attached or when they do get in a relationship, they're anxiously attached because they feel like they were so lucky to get the person because they're dealing with, um, just uh, in a, like a, a lot of rejection prior to that and not feeling like they had a ton of dating options. And that's kind of what I help them work on is how to be more attractive, how to, you know, be a better all around man. So you can attract, you know, a higher quality companion. Um, but then often you, I see that they jump into a relationship and then they get anxiously attached and then they get addicted to this person. And then it's like, you know, I warn them every time, Cause you see the warning signs right from the get go. You're like, this is, you know, you're in a really bad spot here. And, you know, they call it like one itis sometimes in the, in the dating community. Um, so do you have any advice for, for men that are sort of dealing with that? Uh, you know, with men, I think it's um, really hard to not feel shame, you know, mm-hmm. because you're supposed to be a certain way as a man. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but there's two things I would say. One is, you're in a state of scarcity. Attachment issues bring up scarcity, which means limited resources, which means, you know, because you've been rejected and you have this attachment style that you're looking at, there's not a lot of great women out there. There's not a lot of great options out there. But the truth is, it's really just your perception. And if you can open up your perception, if you can start seeing things a little bit differently, you'd see that there are a lot more options out there. And that the other thing is the package that it comes in, like, Most of us have this ideal in our head when we're single. Oh, I want this kind of person looking a certain way, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. But that doesn't really mean that they're going to be a great partner for you. 
And so a lot of times, you know, it's like really get realistic about, well, what is it? Like for me, you know, I got married again. And before I got married, I went through this whole thing about getting my own dating shit together. By the way, I wish I would have known I could cuss because that's my natural lingo. Oh, yeah. (laughs) swear it up (laughs) all right so anyway um but you know i i really i had to go through a lot of different things but one of the things that was really clear to me is i wanted somebody that was kind right that was like the top thing and i didn't have a long list because i realized that i need to wake up next to this person and still like them and be a friend and all of those things and my husband totally kindest person ever born you know like there was just certain qualities that he has And it's really about getting real about it. Like, what is it really that matters to you? You know, it's like, of course, you want to be attracted to them, but you don't need that overwhelming chemistry because that's not realistic to sustain anyway, even, you know, and it's obviously not healthy, but it's all of that. And so I just say that, you know, those are the two things that are are pretty important. I mean, there's more you can do, but I would just start there. Mm -hmm. And how much have you kind of gone into the sort of like, personality disorder stuff, the narcissistic personality disorder, like borderline personality disorder stuff, because I went down a rabbit hole with that stuff after, well, I was, I had a business partner back in the day and, um, he was just a very like strange guy. He was, he was very charming. Um, and he was my business partner because he was kind of like a role model to me because he was really great with women and very attractive, very kind of like a James Bond confident, but he would just rage and fly off the handle and have these like crazy episodes of just intense aggression and anger. And when you were on the wrong side of that, it's like, look out. So I did, you know, after a while of people being like, yo, what's up with your friend? He's like a psycho. Um, I started studying narcissism and I'm like, wow, he's a textbook narcissist. Um, and then, you know, it kind of takes you down a rabbit hole because then you start like labeling everyone in your life. And you're like, well, what am I? Am I codependent? Am I an inverted covert narcissist? Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and then he and then I got to I called him out on it in a I didn't really call him out on it because I figured if I did, he would like have a narcissistic rage episode. But he then learned about it. And then he started kind of witch hunting and calling everyone, you know, some sort of label. Um, so we just kind of went through this crazy, you know, like a year and a half where we were just studying this stuff to death. Um, and I think at the end of it, like I can definitely see where people have those sorts of behaviors, but I'm always careful of labeling. Um, so I was just curious what, what your take on all that stuff is and how much does it kind of affect and play a role in your, in, in your coaching and training of people? Well, I like to get people away from labeling people as well. And the reason being is a lot of people victimize themselves according to those labels. Well, I was with the narcissist, so I've been through narcissist abuse. Well, they forget that they made a choice to actually be there. And that's the thing that I actually help people with. It's like owning your choices, own your shit, take responsibility because it doesn't really matter if other people have a mental disorder, because if they're not going to go get diagnosed in, you know, in the case of like, let's say borderline personality and get on some kind of medication, there's not a lot you can really do except make a choice for yourself. And that's why I always try to bring it back there because yeah, you're right. You can totally go down that rabbit hole. And what good does it do you anyway? Oh, I'm diagnosing everybody. Great, great. All it does is it gives you an excuse to not do something with yourself and look at what am I creating? What am I doing? Totally. Yeah, because you do. It just puts one person in the perpetrator role, the other person in the victim role. And then even if you do like 
well, the, the crazy girl I mentioned that like, well, I was crazy too, but the one, <laughs> the one that triggered me into getting into this, she diagnosed herself as like multiple personality disorder. And wow. yeah, she would even have names for her different personalities, but she was a lot of fun. And even though like I knew that I just, I was so addicted. I didn't care. Eventually I walked away because it was just more sort of pain than, you know, than what it was worth. And, you know, after taking a, a lot of inventory, I was like, okay, this is a decision I need to make. But, um, just the, as you said, the labeling and, you know, it wouldn't do me any good when I, when I would be like, Hey, this is, this is your other personality coming out right now. Um, you know, why are you going to, what are you going to like, are you going to stop being a psycho? Can we go back to the normal person and not like this alter ego? And that, that would just cause the fight to get worse. And so I found that to be the opposite of helpful when you're, when you're starting to label your partner and telling them like, Oh, now you're doing that thing that I hate. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's interesting too, because, um, you know, most of the time it's women that are always labeling men. And, and, you know, I find it interesting when men do it and I do work with men and they, you know, they're always trying to label too, but I used to a long time ago when there was the whole Mars and Venus thing, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, what's his face? Dr. Gray, uh, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember buying the book and sitting my ex-boyfriend down and like (laughs) reading him what he was in the book. believe I did that. Right. And of course I'm innocent. I'm like, Oh, poor me. Look at me. I'm with you. And you're so horrible. And can't you get your shit together? Like, first of all, people can't snap their fingers and get their shit together for one thing. Another thing, it's my opinion. And I'm not looking again at myself and what I'm contributing. And that's, I think where a lot of people actually mess up with the dating and being in relationships. It's what is your part in it? You have a part. It's not a hundred percent, the other person, I mean, a lot of times we're trying to mold people into what we think they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Then they just end up feeling pressured and, and the whole other host of, you know, problems there. And <laughs> what, what about, um, the five love languages? So I've heard mixed reviews about whether or not they're bullshit, whether or not they even belong in the sort of discussion with some of this other stuff. Um, but that was one that, that was that I kept kind of experiencing where when I was anxiously attached to this partner, I mentioned, um, I always had a need for like physical love and, and, um, uh, quality time basically. And it seemed like her love languages were like the opposite. Um, and so we were really clashing on that. Do you think there's any merit to, to the love languages and do, do those play a role in attachment style at all? I think they change. I don't think that um, you can rely on the five love again, because the five love languages is like five labels. And I think that human beings are more dynamic than that. And that we all have love languages that change depending on our mood, depending on who we're with. I mean, to me, it's not a way to gauge shit because I get people that will go, well, I, you know, I only have the love language of words. And it's like, well, that's a choice that you're making at the time you don't realize. And it's probably to do with what's happened in your past. You know, mm-hmm. it's maybe there were words that were said to you and maybe you weren't given a lot of physical attention. And so you don't know what to do with physical attention, but you know what to do with words or, you know, it's the mood you're in. You just want to hear something. I mean, yeah. yeah I, I just, find them to be very much indicative of my mood, right? Because like, obviously sometimes you want the physical touch, but other times you're just like, no, like 
tell me, you know, give me some affirmation or give me a gift. Right. So right. Uh, that's, yeah, I think you nailed it. It is a very, you know, sort of dumbed down look at things. We're, I think we complicate more. things. I was going to say, I think we just complicate things. You know, it's really simple, but we add on all of this other shit to it. So that dating and getting in relationships seems like I've got to go get a degree in it. Right. Yeah, totally. What about in, in the career sort of job world? How do you see insecure attachment like negatively affecting that? That's so funny because that's uh, our recent expansion has been into, you know, working with people at work, uh, in businesses. And one of the biggest problems, at least with the careers that we, first of all, we attract a lot of people that have intense careers. So people that look for intense jobs usually have some kind of insecure attachment issues. You know, people, what's an example of an intense job being a doctor, being a lawyer. Yeah. Being a salesperson. High pressure. Yeah. Because there's like a, there's like a high and a low to it. You know, and there's an intensity that can take you out of your body that can take you like out of your life. Right. So I don't have to focus on my life because this thing is all encompassing. It's swallowing me up. Right. And so we tend to, you know, have people that have those kind of careers or businesses where there's a lot of intensity. The problem is the emotional burnout because you put you know, you're, let's say a perfectionist, let's say that you're a people pleaser, you know, usually a perfectionist is more about the avoidant and a people pleaser is more about the anxious, but these things show up in your work life. You know, people victimize themselves they're on the drama triangle. So it's really about how, where, or I should say, where doesn't it show up? It shows up pretty much everywhere. People aren't always willing to admit it because what they'll, they'll do is they'll go, well, I have great relationships with my friends. But it's the kind of relationships you have with your friends. Are you emotionally intimate with your friends at work? You know, it's what are you doing there? How do you show up? Are you a bully at work? Are you a control freak? Are you, you know, somebody that just is surviving on the high? Like my background was in management, in marketing and sales. And I remember this one job I had where my sales team, we had to do weekly sales and I called it like doing crack every week because you would get, you know, like work, work, work. And then the payoff at the end, it's like, you're all high, just like, you know, the drug of sex <laughs> was like the drug of money, the drug of that high of success. And so that's all temporary. It's mm-hmm. not long lasting. Cause then I got to go to get another hit of crack, you know? Right. Yeah. It was funny. Cause the, the same guy I mentioned, uh, my former business partner, he had, um, he, he got a serious disease, um, which led him to like an intense, um, sort of like spiritual path or awakening where he started meditating, you know, hours every day. And, um, and then he kind of flipped, <laughs> we had, we had kind of stopped being business partners at the time, but he had flipped to kind of like the other side, um, where he was almost like, you know, like a yogi, like you just sit outside and, and he was like, everything's fantasy and everyone's chasing, you know, everyone's chasing these highs. Um, but then after, you know, at, at the end of the day, you're still kind of left with, well, you have to do something, right? So when you kind of get out of the fantasy and you start seeing that you're addicted to people or you're addicted to making money, um, well, I was going to ask, like, first, how do you get out of it? And then, well, then I'll ask the next question. Like, what, what, what can you do if you notice that you're in these sort of addictive patterns? Like, how do you then? The first, kind of the first thing you have to do is look at reality, which is not fun. 
Um, because when you're living in fantasy or you're living in what's the next high going to be, it's that you have to come back to reality. And once you come back to reality, it's not because, you know, Hey, you got to get depressed. It's what disappointments have I been avoiding? You know, what parts of life do I not want to feel or deal with? And when you start to do that, it's not that again, it's a bummer, but it's not going to feel like the fantasy. And the reason you want to do that is once you learn to be in the present moment, and you become curious, you become a creator in your life, literally like you create your life, you build your life, you make your life what you want it to be, and you're in step with it. And so when you're emotionally present, you're aware, you're here, you feel things as they happen, which makes your journey a whole lot sweeter rather than waiting for something that's never going to happen, which is you're going to get to that apex and you're going to go, oh my God, I finally arrived. It's amazing. It's a miracle. And then it's not because you're like, wow, I feel the same as I did yesterday after the, you know, wow, I won wears off. Right. Right. What about imposter syndrome? Can you explain that? And how does that sort of play a role into with like intimate relationships? So the thing with imposter syndrome, and, and I think more avoidance actually suffer from imposter syndrome than people that are anxiously attached. And that's because we've built a persona and that persona was one that was going to keep us from getting criticized, from getting in trouble, you know, seems more successful. People might like me more. You know, these are some of the reasons that people take on certain characteristics. And before you know it, you've sort of developed a whole other persona. And so if anybody's to get close to you and find out the real you, they, you know, that's a scary thing because, oh my God, I'm going to be abandoned. Oh my God. They find out the real me. They're not going to like me. They're not going to love me or they're going to fire me or whatever, if it's a relationship or at work. And so there's this protective part of you where you don't realize it'll kick in. And that's when you're criticizing or judging the other person harshly, like, oh, there's something wrong with them because you're still trying to find a leg up to be superior because you feel like you have to be superior. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, if you get found out for being who you really are, right, the mask comes off and they're like, oh my God, who are you? Then you feel like you can be abandoned. You feel like you're going to lose control or lose them all the way. And so mm-hmm. that's what most people don't realize with imposter syndrome is that, you know, eventually it's going to happen anyways. Eventually you're going to get found out. And so it's better just to be who you are. But I say that it's not that simple to go from here to there. Right. So it's almost like you're trying so hard to be this person and then eventually, you know, you can't be perfect. <laughs> so right. Right. You're, you're going to get found out. But then a lot of the time, even if you, you think you're getting found out, people still think like if you develop this persona to be like a kick-ass business person, almost to an unhealthy degree where you're, you know, in the office from nine till never and then just working, working, working. I I think your imposter syndrome would even become worse because you're right. Like you have this totally unrealistic goal of where you could be. And then when, if if someone doesn't see you as that, Mm -hmm. they're like, you start to feel like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm an imposter. I'm, I'm a phony or I'm a fake. Right. Not how they feel. Well, and here's, you don't even know how they feel. That's your assumption. Right. And you're so worried about it. (laughs) Right. If you're running that behavior. Right. It's your own expectation in your head that has you having that behavior because most other people will adapt if you were to change it. But there's so much fear 
you know, no, I got to work till, you know, midnight. But the truth is you can establish your own boundaries with that. You know, you can establish what it is you want your life, again, to create what you want your life to look like. But most people don't set those kind of standards. Most people just sort of, you know, okay, well, this is what I do. Well, you don't even know how you got to where you do what you do. You know, like you don't even know how you probably got working, you know, 12 hours a day. You probably don't realize how you portrayed yourself. You just have done it unconsciously. Totally. Yeah. And you brought up the word boundaries, which is something you hear a lot when it comes to dealing with, uh, you know, attachment styles or just dealing with, with relationships. Right. And that was always, you know, a, just, just a separate, like, you know, because people throw around this stuff, like you have to set healthy boundaries or you need boundaries in that. Um, but then a lot of clients will ask me like, well, how do you know what your boundaries are? Or how do you know when someone's breaking your boundaries? Or you know, how can you have boundaries if you don't even know what you want? <laughs> God, People are so funny because again, how I said, we complicate things. So to me, where I go with boundaries, it's this. If I want love and respect, then I got to treat myself with love and respect. If I don't treat myself with love and respect, I can shut the fuck up because here's the thing. If I'm going to tell people what to do and I'm not doing it, then they're just watching how I allow myself to be treated. And, you know, we're, we're animals in that way, right? We have an instinct about it. We watch, we observe, and we're like, and we don't even, again, consciously go, oh, this person doesn't respect themselves. We react to how they don't respect themselves. So your boundaries are treat yourself how you want to be treated, period. I love that. It's so concise and, and clear because you're right. We, we basically walk around with like a script and we're like, here's how you should treat me. And, you know, we, we give that script away with our, our micro expressions, our, you know, our body language, just, you know, the, the, the facial expressions, all that stuff. Right. And, and we're so highly tuned socially to read these things. At least some people are um, a lot of the guys I coach need help in that area, but the, you know, we're, we're telling people like, treat me like this have these boundaries with me like this, the, mm-hmm. the second you meet them, you know, on the first impression and surely as time goes on and you get to know someone better and you kind of break down some of those walls of once you get past the small talk or you, you get to know someone better where you can, you know, you're not totally afraid to offend them. But, right. you know, that's when, you know, you start hearing these like, well, you, you're treating me like X, Y, Z. And you could just sort of turn the mirror around and be like, well, this is how, you know, this is what mm-hmm. you're, this is how you're telling me to treat you. Right. right. So. It is. I mean, think about it because if I am telling somebody, well, I want respect and then they're disrespectful to me. And all I do is I want to, I want to, um, you know, tell them, oh, you shouldn't treat me that way. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm still right. trying to deal with it outside of me instead of going, gee, I'm being disrespected right now. How do I feel? And what do I want to do about it that I can do for myself? And then it would be, okay, hey, guess what? I don't want to be a part of this conversation right now. I love you. I care about you, but I'm going to go ahead and get out of this conversation because it doesn't feel good to me. Or if it's a relationship where this happens all the time, you know what? I am disrespecting myself by being here. And so I need to go ahead and leave. It's like that simple, but people complicate it because they think they can control the other person's behavior and you can't. Yeah. And that's, that's really the important thing is, yeah, you can't, you can't control someone. The more you try to control someone, the more it pisses them off or the more they do the thing you don't want them to do. Um, And it takes, you know, it took me a long time to realize that. (laughs) And, And you're right. Sort of a lot of the time just saying like, 
walking away and not making the thing a bigger deal than it is, is, is the correct or the best thing to do. I mean, not the correct thing to do, but the best thing to do for you, for your own self-respect or for your own self-love, whatever that is. Exactly. And you do it in a way that speaks to compassion, that speaks to love rather mm-hmm. than you don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to go, you know what, you're an asshole. Fuck you. Because of course, then you're not, you're, you're making it into something different. That's not about boundaries at that point. But so you mentioned something about EQ and was that mention of EQ? I think it's, it's something about how to move forward from insecure attachment um, to having EQ. Do, do you mean like equilibrium by that or, or <laughs> emotional, like emotional intelligence? <laughs> it's, it's emotional intelligence. It's funny. Yes. Equal, okay. Equilibrium probably too. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. So with emotional intelligence, what's interesting is that uh, a long time ago in a land far, far away, when I was getting my bachelor's degree, um, I did this whole thing on emotional intelligence and it's kind of stuck with me ever since then. And what's interesting about it is the originators, not Daniel Goleman, who basically took what the uh, original studies were and sort of made it into something completely different but the originators of it, um, they basically were trying to figure out if people could learn how to be emotionally intelligent or if it was just innate and you were screwed no matter what. Like, oh, that's your level. Sorry. Right. So um, when it comes to attachment issues, one of the things when I was talking about emotions earlier is that most of us who are um, in the insecure attachment field, even people that are anxious, we are detached from our emotions. We don't know how to manage them. You know, we are not even aware of them. We may be aware of our reactions, you know, the reaction of anxiety or the reaction of being angry or crying. Like those aren't deep emotions. Those are reactive, right? So we know that, but we don't really know how to manage how we feel. We don't even know how to self-soothe. And so these are things that have to do with emotional intelligence. So the more you do this work, or at least the work that I do with people, they become more emotionally intelligent because they find that they can do this, that they can have intrinsic motivation. They have, you know, they're not, um, their locus of control is not external anymore. It's internal. So they have an internal locus of control, you know, people that have an internal locus of control as an example, or people that, you know, say, oh, this too shall pass, or they just Mm -hmm. know that whatever's happening out here doesn't mean that it's going to define their mood or what they choose to do or how they choose to feel that they are still the choosers of how they deal with reality. Gotcha. And that just comes from practice. I would, I would guess. Well, it comes from doing things in a completely different way. You know, it's like when I work with people, we really do work in getting past whatever all the stories are, but we get to the belief system and I help people to permanently change patterns through emotion, you know, because I'll back up a little, when you develop a belief, it's usually that you've had an emotional reaction to something in your life at a certain time, more than once. And it becomes a belief, a belief doesn't become a belief just because you repeat it. I mean, if you look at how people sit and repeat affirmations over and over and have no emotional attachment to it, it doesn't make it true. So, you know, it's things that have come emotionally and that's how your subconscious operates. It operates that way. And so, you know, my way in is we work in the emotional aspect of it so that you start to change actually how you feel, how you react to things, and it helps you to change how you perceive things. And therefore, 
you realize, oh my God, I can deal with my emotions. I don't need to avoid them like avoidance. We avoid our emotions, right? It's like, I'm not going to get close to anybody because then I'm going to have to deal with something uncomfortable. That's going to give me anxiety because that's where mm-hmm. avoidance get anxiety is having to deal with their own shit. And that's right. why keeping people away, it's easier. So, you know, it's, I could go on and talk about how it all works, but that's what I have found is that that's where you can permanently change a pattern because you have a different emotional reaction to something and you do it differently while you're feeling it and you take action. It's kind of like it all comes together at once. It's sort of like, um, I, I didn't realize this until recently. It's like frogs model of behavior and it's similar, but it's different. Like how he describes how you change a pattern is kind of different than how I do it. So, but that's, that's what I have found. Gotcha. What's an example of like a, just a, a, one of those beliefs you were talking about, like, you know, something happens a few times you develop a belief, what would be an example of that? Okay. So I'm going to give you my little pyramid. Okay. So -hmm. the little pyramid is this, I have a belief, let's say that I'm alone. All right. So I got my hand at the bottom, next hand goes on top. I have a rule that supports that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my rule can be something like, I will not date people that are three foot two. Okay. So how you can tell you have a rule about something is you have words like will, won't, can, can't, should, shouldn't, things like that. All right. Mm -hmm. And those tell you, you have a rule. And a lot of times it's kind of a bullshit rule. So I got a, I got a rule there. That's going to keep me alone because maybe the majority of people in the world are three foot two, maybe 80% of the people are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that only leads me 20%. On top of my rule, I have a story. So when I have a rule that says I cannot date people that are three foot two, even though they're the majority of the world, I have a because, because, and this is my story, because when I dated people that were three foot two, they would cheat on me. They were horrible. They, you know, blah, 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 blah. You got a story. Okay. On top of your story, you have a pattern. Your pattern is what you do and what you say. Okay. So you're going to keep this in place with you know, I can't date them. So you do not date people that are three foot two. You go out with people maybe that are seven foot five and, you know, you only date that. And that's maybe 1% of the world. So of course, and they don't live in your country. Okay. So you have like maybe one or two people. And so you've still got the, I'm alone belief. And you have to look at how is that working for me? Look at that. I've got a rule, a story, you know, a pattern. And then what does that do? It gives me evidence. And that's at the top of the pyramid. And so when you have that evidence, it keeps the belief in place because I'm alone because there's nobody really to date because most of the population is three foot two and I won't date those people. Right. (laughs) It's crazy how we do that without even realizing it. Right. Right. And this is just about having that awareness, but you can do something not at the level of belief or evidence, but you can do something at the level of rule story or pattern. The, you know, you can do, okay. The rule, I will date people that are three foot two. That can feel scary. Even when you say it good, that means you're getting uncomfortable and something's going to change, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's at each of those levels, you can do something to change that trajectory. Got it. Yeah. That's, that's helpful with uh, the layers of the pyramid there, because yeah, you're right. At the top, there's not a lot you can do, but once you get dive to what's really going on, you know, under the hood, there is a lot you can do. You can just start, you know, <laughs> get rid of the rule, <laughs> yeah. open your life up to so much more or challenge uh, your story, you know, or yeah. not, you know, or break a pattern. Totally. Okay, what I usually do, I'm not going to do. I'm going to do something different. <laughs> 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 so what is, something that, that I found interesting, a, a client was, um, 
telling me about a fight he got in with this woman he's totally insecurely attached to. Um, and she basically went off on him and, you know, started criticizing him for all these different things that he's doing. And then when he tried to, you know, argue with her or, or rebut what she was saying, she was like, these are my feelings. And, you know, don't tell me, don't tell me how my feelings are, or I can't change my feelings, something like that. And then something I saw that, that you said was feeling your feelings is not the same as having an emotional reaction, like anger or crying. And, you know, does that kind of play into what was happening in this situation? Um, Or when you see, because I've, I've seen that same sort of, you know, crazy meltdown before from people like, these are my feelings, like, and just getting totally caught up in that. And I'm like, well, are your feelings always valid? And, you know, just because they're your feelings is, you know, (laughs) where do we go with that? Well, here's the thing. Like I said before, you know, it's the reaction. Mm -hmm. The reaction isn't really your true feelings. The reaction is you're reacting to a story in your own head normally that whatever's happening out here, you know, it's in your filter of whatever you think that is. And so you're just stuck in that. So you don't even know what's really going on at a deeper level. You don't even know what the belief is. Like when people are reacting in that way, where it's, you know, they're having a meltdown that has nothing to do with the reality of feeling your actual feelings. You have to get beneath that to know what is the motivation, what is driving this actual, you know, behavior. And so, you know, otherwise it's just bullshit and you can't tell again, your client can't tell this person what she's doing or she's not doing because she's not going to buy into that. And, you know, nobody's listening when they're freaking out anyway. Yeah. It's a kind of a, an interesting and and funny story. Um, So they, they met on seeking.com. And originally it was like a pay per meet arrangement where he paid her 500 bucks and, you know, she had Mm -hmm. sex with him. And then that developed into, a more sort of regular situation. Um, but then they developed like real feelings for each other and she's very avoidant. He's very anxiously attached, but you know, and they go through these cycles every three or four months where she'll come back and be like, I want to see you. And then they have like a great couple days together or maybe a couple weeks. And then inevitably she says, you're not right for me. You pay for sex. Um, and then has some crazy meltdown and accuses him of doing all these things. And, and by the way, she's a only, only fan star and like a webcam girl. So he's like, how can you call me, you know, like a, a John and paying for sex when you're making money, like webcamming, right. <laughs> but yeah. he never says any of this stuff because he's so worried about losing her, but then he vents to me and, and just, you know, plays the victim and, and goes all into it. Right. Um, and he's like, you know, I want to follow up and text her and tell her she's, she's totally, um, you know, a hypocrite. And this, I'm like, well, that's not really going to do any good. Like pointing the finger at her. I'm like, this just seems like a situation where you should probably walk away. (laughs) You know, like the, the shame that she's feeling around maybe that sexual encounter, or maybe the fact that she was doing that has nothing to do with you. Like her pointing the finger and saying like, you pay for sex. I told him, I'm like, that's more likely just her, you know, saying I get paid for sex yeah, sort of thing. So that's kind of the, the backstory there. <laughs> and so what was the question again? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, I was just curious if there was, if there was any, anything else you would maybe add to what, what you, what you would tell this guy to do in that situation. 
Well, they got to take the whole how they met out of the equation. Mm-hmm. You know, I have friends that were on. Um, oh, my God. I always forget the name of it. It's the one where they got busted a few years ago. Um, Ashley you- Madison. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I had friends that were on there. <laughs> one of them ended up marrying somebody that they met on there. Okay. So so what I mean by that is I don't care where you meet people. I've had people I have friends that met on alternative sites, you know, fetish sites. Right. Got married. So there are these places that you meet people. But it's why somebody would be attached to coming back to, like you said, she probably has the shame of what she does. Because whenever you're attacking somebody for the same thing you did, basically, it's more about how you're keeping that avoidance, right? There's a huge gap there. And that's comfortable to them. When you start to encroach on their getting close, the whole imposter syndrome, because you know, she probably has to put on a persona to do her webcam stuff. And she probably, you know, even, um, you know, with the seeking, you know, it's like, okay, great. She's being paid. So again, these are all barriers to her having any emotional intimacy with another human being, because she's probably afraid of being found out. And, oh God, you know, if you find out the real me, you're going to leave me. I don't know if she's consciously aware of that, but you know, it's stuff like that. Again, I always go back to has nothing to do with what it looks like out here. It's always to do with what's going on inside of somebody. Right. You know, and he's trying to tell me that he's like, I I should tell her to go on therapy. I'm like, that's not going to help, man. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nothing's going to help her unless she says to him, Hey, you know what? I realize I have a problem and I need to get some help. What do you think? Or can you help me? Right. Exactly. And um, yeah, it's tough because he just can't seem to find his way out of the addiction there. You know, and he's got this whole thing wrapped up in, well, she's the only one that turns me on. And I'm like, well, that's not actually true that you're just stuck in the sexual fantasy and and the addiction there too. Right. He should actually, you know, I I mean, this is just one thing I would add is you're probably telling him this anyways. And that is he really has to, if he's not ready to leave, don't push himself to leave because a lot of times there's a pressure in that. And it doesn't address the struggle in the first place of why you're there. Like, why did you choose this? Get to know your own. I'm all about getting to know your own motivation. Because if you don't know why, you're just going to go repeat it. It may not be with somebody on a site like that. It might be on a different site, you know, different circumstances, but you're going to feel the same way, which is you're not able to get, you know, close to somebody. You're not able to have a real emotionally intimate relationship. Yeah, that's that's really good because I've... I, I haven't pushed him to, to really leave the situation. Cause I know he won't. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. it doesn't do me any good to be like block her and don't talk to her again. Like, right. she's just gonna, you know, it's just going right. to feed, feed it. So it, I think that's where he should start is asking those questions. Like what am, you know, what am I getting out of this or why do I need this? What's going on with me that, cause he would, he would just go out and he would find the exact same replica of, of her most likely yeah. and just repeat the cycle. So he would. Yeah, yep. Yeah. We are creatures of habit. <laughs> <Certainly are>. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that um, you feel is, you know, integral to this conversation that we didn't talk about? Um, or, you know, th- th- in, in terms of where people can sort of like find out more also, and how can people find out more about your work and, and get some of these deeper? Cause I love what you're talking about. It's, 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 real change and real hard work that's required to unpack some of this stuff, not saying it's difficult to do, but it does take looking at these problems from a totally different perspective 
and not just looking at what's going on because there's so much going on. It's like an iceberg. There's way more going on under the surface than, than what's there. It is. It's, you know, it's so hard. I mean, because I remember my own journey and I was so like focused on the relationship and what was wrong with it and the other person's problem and, or what I thought was their problem. And if our, if they could just fix it, the relationship would be fine kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot to actually go inward and go, what is going on with me? Why am I choosing to be in a situation like this? And it's not because you're wanting to beat yourself up because a lot of us are really good at shaming ourselves. You know, we're really good at criticizing ourselves. You you don't want to do that. You want to become your own friend in a way, you know, you want to be kinder, compassionate and go, okay, what's going on with me, but you're going to have to allow yourself to have some emotional experiences that you probably avoided. You know, a lot of us are afraid of disappointment. We will do anything to not be disappointed because we don't like how it feels. You know, we don't like how anxiety feels, but yet we'll keep perpetuating anxiety because it's familiar rather than going to unfamiliar emotions. So, you know, and a lot of this is my own journey because I was totally in my head. I mean, I, at one point in my life, I was like, I don't want to have emotions anymore. I'm working hard. <laughs> I seriously, I was like working hard to not feel anything ever again. That was like my goal. I wow. didn't work, by the way. Yeah, it was, I, <laughs> oh my God, I was a workaholic at the time too. It's like, okay, I'll just keep working and forget it. But um, if you get my book, which is back here, you know, I do get into that. I made the book more of a how-to guide. It's written in a language. It's very conversational. So it's an easy to read, but it's got a lot of deeper, I would say tools that you can use. And I highly recommend because it's not so much about your brain learning it. It's about your whole body. You know, when you have, and I'll leave you with this, when you have a reaction to something, just notice the next time you do what you do. In other words, let's say you're driving down the street and something runs in front of your car. Notice what your whole body does. It tightens. You might make a face, a grimace of some sort, like, ah, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a learned way of responding. That's a learned reaction. I guarantee you, you react like that. You hold your body in the same way when you react to certain things that scare the shit out of you. And so if you pay attention to that, there's emotions that are wrapped up in that physically in your body and you start paying attention to the feelings in there, it changes everything. You start to have a relationship with yourself. And that's the best thing because what ends up happening is people that are insecurely attached, you find that your body is the safest place to be because nothing outside of you is it's all, you know, transient. It's always changing. You can't hold on. It's temporary, right? The only thing you have is what's inside of you. And so that's like the focus of my work. Um, I have a podcast and it's called freedom from attachment. So, you know, I always talk about different tools, different things you can do to recognize it and you know, what the steps are. Um, you can go to tracycrossley.com and find me there. And, um, yeah, and that's really what I got going on. Awesome. The, uh, I like the, what you said at the end there, it's, it's that like the emotions are trapped in your body. So when you feel, you know, you kind of go into that, that familiar place. And I can totally relate to that. But as you're saying it, I was, I was thinking about, you know, the road rage I get all the time, especially yeah. <laughs> in, in the winter time. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? I know that's like the one last area that I have struggled with. I'm being honest, like, Oh my God, yeah. I live in LA. So it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. I used to live in LA and Kiev, Ukraine, as far as traffic goes, is uh, it's pretty close to, to, to as much road rage as you can get in LA. So. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it if you're a road rager, but 
Tracy, it's been so awesome having you on and uh, thanks so much for, you know, sharing all your, all your wisdom with us. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you want more, go to innerconfidence.com and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for the latest episodes. 